Peter Borker here and welcome to today's edition of the Transition Guide. Now joining me today in the studio is Ross Kimbrowski, CEO and founder of CrowdSpring. Welcome Ross. Thanks so much, Peter. Happy to be here talking with you and uh, your listeners. Uh, great to have you. Now, <laughs> it's quite interesting that the last sort of 18 months, we've seen huge shifts in the workforce. We've seen huge shifts in behaviors. We've seen lockdowns around the world. We've seen far more people starting to remote work. And for many people, that remote working was an absolute trauma. In fact, for many businesses, remote working was a trauma. And it was something that companies have been scrambling to try and make work. What's interesting is that you've been doing this what, for the best part of 13, 14 years now. We have. We, we were lucky in a sense because when we started hiring, um, we, we decided to hire the best people wherever they were, not just locally. And so we ended up with a distributed team. And over the years, uh, it's gotten to the point where for the last three, we've been completely remote. We, we used to have a, um, a group of people in Chicago and then people moved. We said, listen, you don't have to live in Chicago to work for us. You can move wherever you want. So people took us up on it. So, so we were very fortunate in that sense. Obviously, the pandemic impacted us in lots of other ways. But from a perspective of having to shift from in-office to remote, um, it, it didn't impact us. Now, if you go back 13 years, I mean, that is like a huge I mean, that was like more or less unheard of back then. At the end of the day, companies wanted to see their employees to keep an eye on them. How did you mitigate that? How did you manage to make sure you got the best out of your people without looking over them, given the fact that 13 years ago, technology is nowhere near as good as it is now? Part of it was was just not not knowing what everybody else was doing. We were a bit naive about how to go uh, and start a company. Uh, I, I had been an attorney, a trial attorney for 13 years. I had worked with lots of startups. I saw they had lots of different ways to hire and and work with people. But what, when we first started out, you know, the, the big question that we were trying to ask is, where are we going to get the best people, and how are we going to get the best people? And and we were um, significantly influenced by, by a few other companies that were doing it at the time. So, so we saw that while bigger companies, big corporations, even small companies were hiring for the office, building offices, you know, Google and everybody else was, was giving all these incentives. You can eat for free, you can get your laundry done for free, you get free massages. We thought if we want the best people, we know with 100% certainty, they are not within 25 miles of us. They may be in London, they may be in Africa, they may be in Brazil, Malaysia, we didn't know. And remember, part of, part of the whole premise of CrowdSpring, we're a global marketplace, helping businesses connect with freelancers for custom design and naming services. So our entire community of freelancers, 220,000 today, uh, is remote. They're all over the world in every single country. So our business model, was designed to help businesses overcome the problem working with people who are all over the world. And we said, why not essentially eat our own dog food? Why not do the same thing? And just not worry about having an office, not worry about hiring locally, and just focus on people who were really great at what we needed them to do. Now, given that quite a few entrepreneurs are control freaks and need to sort of be watching over people, and see how hard they're working to kind of get their metric. 
how did you overcome that and actually were able to measure performance remotely and actually make sure that you had consistency? Because for many entrepreneurs, this is like the biggest nightmare you can possibly imagine. So I actually think measuring performance is easy. It's the easy part of the equation. If you are a reasonably good manager, if you're a reasonably good leader, you should be able to assess whether the people who are working for you are performing and performing well. What's super difficult is hiring people who may never have worked remotely or hiring people that might have, who might've been in a, in a bad situation where their teams just didn't give them the right autonomy and the right support really difficult to hire people that could perform at that level because the reality is not everybody is great at working remote. Some people need the structure of an office. Some people need the structure of having somebody standing near them or sitting near them. And so, so for us, it was all about investing really hard in understanding the right questions to ask, the right approach to take. So, so one of the interesting things from the beginning for us was I don't read resumes. Uh, I, I, when we hire, we get hundreds of people apply for positions. I don't care where people went to school. I don't care where people work. What we do instead is we ask five or six questions and we ask people to write a narrative uh, response to each of these questions. So, so first and foremost, we look for people that are good communicators in writing, because one thing we learn, and this is what companies are going to both struggle with and I think understand in the next five to 10 years, people who communicate really well do so across different mediums. So people that are really good writers tend to also do well on messages like Slack uh, or an instant message. And they tend to do pretty well in face-to-face -face communications, although that's not universally true. So we fundamentally look for great communicators. We look for people that we thought had the potential to, to do really well. And so, I mean, I've hired engineers who had self-taught and whose only formal job had been collecting carts at a grocery store. Um, and otherwise they were doing open source projects and they've turned out to be some of the best people that, that I've hired. So a lot of it I think has to do on what happens at the beginning um, as opposed to what happens after you bring them in. You make mistakes, you sometimes end up hiring people that just don't work out, but it's less about measuring what they do because a good strong team is gonna be very well driven. And I think we'll do great in remote situations. But if you don't hire well, that's where you run into problems. So yeah, first stage is to hire well. Great. Where do you see them? I mean, do you think we're at the tip of the iceberg? So you look at the fact that you've got this many sort of freelancers working for you. Do you see that market growing? In terms of not necessarily just in design, I'm talking about people thinking, okay, I'm not just going to work for one business anymore. I'm actually going to go and do it for myself, work remotely, work from home, because they've, they've actually got used to that environment and perhaps start thinking, okay, do you know what? I'm going to do it for myself. So I'm not sure, ultimately. I think there are certainly shifts in, in work patterns. So we're younger generations, you know, Gen Z is coming up, millennials have, have been dominating in the workforce for a long time, and older generations are retiring. So the concept of, uh, of staying in a job for 10 to 15 years is slowly disappearing. Now, there are jobs that are great, it's, it's comfortable, you're getting fairly paid, you're doing good work, and, and we're going to see plenty of people stay in those jobs and contribute and, and do very well. 
Um, there will continue to be incentives for people to do something on their own, to, to be entrepreneurial. And, and ultimately, you know, what, what, we, what we say to people is if, if that's a driver for you, certainly explore that side because some people are really good at it. Some people get tremendous benefits from it, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to be a freelancer. It, it is, you know, when you work for a company, you have a safety net effectively. You get a salary. You hopefully are doing pretty good work. It's consistent. You get paid for six days and vacations in most companies. When you're working for yourself as a freelancer, you don't have any of that. And so if you are one of the best freelancers in, in your segment, if you're a video producer, for example, and you're phenomenal and everybody wants to work with you, then you've got a really good uh, special situation. But if you are competing against hundreds of thousands of other video producers or hundreds of thousands of other designers or architects, uh, it becomes harder because you have to not only do the job for which you're hired as a freelancer, but you have to look for new clients because clients are going to ultimately move on to other projects. And you have to do all of the things that, that, that you need to do to run a business. So you have to bill people, you have to collect invoices, you have to make sure that you build a brand for yourself, you know, it's, it's, and a brand identity, everything visual, because you can't just magically start getting jobs one after the other, you actually have to make efforts. How much is, how much is sort of Crowdspring, how much has that influenced your other ventures that you've been involved in? So I learned from from everything. I mean, ultimately, um, I think it's important to be a, a lifelong learner. So, so part of Part of the answer for me is um, I make plenty of mistakes along the way. I think it's impossible to build the business without, without making mistakes. And in part, it's because it's very rare as business owners that we have complete information uh, or even perfect information on which to make decisions. And so oftentimes, especially if you're trying to move quicker, um, you're forced to make decisions with incomplete or imperfect information. And one of the one of the lessons I learned uh, a long time ago was that that indecision is far worse than making a mistake, and it's something I communicate to to my team when I hire them. Um, I empower people to be accountable. I empower people to be um, autonomous and make decisions. Because uh, for for a number of years in our own business, we had a tough time making decisions around you know shifting our our, our own brand identity, shifting our our, our marketing, and and it just it it, it was killing us because we were essentially stuck in place. And so um, what it's taught me in other ventures is to make quicker decisions with less information, obviously to be comfortable that those decisions may fail. And, and, and I've started other ventures, some of which have failed. Uh, and that's okay because at the end of the day, I, I think there's a big difference uh, in failing while you're trying to succeed and learning from that failure and failing to fail. There was for a long time this, uh, this ethos in Silicon Valley in particular, and people I think abused what it meant. They said, well, I'm gonna start a quick business so I can fail and learn. And the thing is, if you're trying to fail, you're not learning, you're just failing. Uh, and so, so we learn a lot from running this business. I've learned a lot from running other businesses. Um, I learned a lot from these kinds of conversations and talking to other entrepreneurs about some of their challenges. So given the fact that we're now coming out of global lockdowns, and it's fair to say that the economies around the world are starting to pick up. In fact, I think I read recently that the US is now at pre-pandemic levels. So you've really taken off 
in the States. Question I have for you is what advice would you give entrepreneurs today? What should they be focusing on? Well, fundamentally, um, one thing that people need to understand is we've just gone through this really critically difficult period, not just in the US, but around the world. And, and part of what, what that means is looking back at the way you do business, the way you communicate and reassessing it. The way that we communicated before the pandemic has changed. People are more sensitive. So, so you'll everybody will remember that, that we had a lot of commercials on television and in print that were focusing on you know, the fact that nobody was in sports stadiums and, and you, know, you couldn't eat food in restaurants and, and how, how masking was, was, was uh, done everywhere and safety measures and such. So, so even basic businesses like service businesses, plumbers, electricians um, have to change the way they communicate because customers expect something different. In the past, a customer asking somebody to come to their home wasn't thinking about a virus, wasn't thinking about masking, wasn't thinking about the potential they might catch a disease and become a statistic. And, and now all customers are thinking about that. So, so part of what I would encourage entrepreneurs to do is rethink your messaging, how you communicate, when you communicate, what you communicate about. Because if you haven't changed the way you communicate from before the pandemic, you're probably falling behind your competitors, but more importantly, there's a cognitive dissonance. You know, there's a, there's a tension between what you're saying and what people are expecting to hear. And the second thing I would, I would encourage people to do is take a look at their brand identities. Um, and a brand identity is, is everything visual about your brand. Now it could be your personal brand, um, and ultimately, if you're an individual looking to freelance or, or looking to run a business as an individual, you have a brand and it works just like the brand of a company. And if you have a company uh, and it's just you or, or a partner or a few people, you have a brand. And here's why that's so important. First of all, visual design has become a differentiator. And we see that in a few ways. Startups that have great visual design tend to get more funding. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just been true for the past decade. Um, and the reason for that is because when they enter the marketplace, people resonate better with, with those startups. They have more credibility. They build more loyal customers. Now you still need good products, obviously. You still need great services, but, but visual design is the, is the price at which you have to enter a competitive market. The second is you're competing with lots of other people. So if you are driven to essentially work for yourself, or if you're driven to start a business, um, you're not building in a vacuum. Everybody else has been impacted by the same economy, by the same pandemic. And they're thinking, well, maybe I'll go out on my own and, and, and either compete as a freelancer or start a new business. But standing out in a crowd of thousands or hundreds of thousands of millions of other people who are providing similar goods and services to you is difficult. And, and that's where design is important. And then, and then the third reason is, is very practical. Younger consumers, so Gen Z, millennials, and those that are following them, uh, are much more visual. So the tools they're using, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, um, are visual tools. And so they're used to visual communications. They're using emojis to communicate. And as a result, they are far more attentive 
to those types of visual cues. And when you're dealing with younger consumers who respect design to a greater degree than people in the past, you have to up your game in that. So, so I would encourage people to rethink their messaging and rethink how visually they present themselves. It's always been important, but becoming even more important now. Yeah, do you know, and that probably resonates because we do, we are getting older as people. And sometimes we forget we're getting older. And the reality is our customers are getting younger. And maybe there are times where we sort of tend to lose touch of that. So that's a really good point. Thank you, Ross. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think there's some really good sort of snippets here for the audience today. So thank you very much for sharing. If people want to sort of connect with you and find out more information about you, where do they go? So crowdspring.com is our site, C-R-O-W-D-S-P-R-I-N-G. We have a terrific blog for entrepreneurs, small businesses, marketers, crowdspring.com slash blog. We write a lot of long form content, you know, from, from 5,000 to 20,000 words on, on important topics. Um, I am at Ross Kimborowski on Twitter uh, and uh, Ross Kimborowski on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Brilliant. It's been great having you on. If anything we spoke about today resonated with you, you want some additional information, head over to borka.com and get in touch. If you've loved today's episode, please like it, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and please share it with others that may benefit. And most importantly, always remember, failing to learn is learning to fail. So please stay safe. And once again, Ross, thank you so much. Thank you.